I'm Steve. And I'm Erica. And we are in the midst of a series we've been doing looking at different um, branches uh, or stories from the Christian family tree. Older sisters and brothers in the faith of different eras, different backgrounds, all sorts of different things, only with the common thread of people we find interesting to talk about <laughs> and to learn from their uh, their feats and their foibles. So uh, tell us, um, Erica, where are we going to go today? So today we're coming to the 20th century, so we're coming... <laughs> we finally made it! Yay! <laughs> we're finally getting a little bit modern here, um, but I'm realizing, as we've been talking about this series and preparing for it, the people that fascinate me the most tend to be Catholic, and I'm not sure why that is. Because, Interesting. Because <laughs> I am not Catholic, though half my family is. Um, but the person I really want to focus in on today is, is Henry Nouwen. Um, I was first introduced to Nouwen uh, through some of his writings in seminary and absolutely fell in love with him. Um, so Henry Nouwen was born January 24th, 1932, uh, so obviously the most modern. Um, only lived uh, for 64 years. He, was, he died in 96, um, but he was born in the Netherlands, and his interests are primarily rooted in psychology, pastoral ministry, spirituality, social justice, and the community. Uh, so Nouwen was a Catholic priest. Uh, he was ordained uh, within... Um, the Dutch Catholic Church, and eventually went on and got his doctorate and did a lot of teaching because he was fascinated by, by psychology and how that fit into pastoral ministry. That is a huge part of what he has done over the years. Um, taught at a bunch of various universities, both here in the States and up in Canada, and I think even some other places around the world, um, and is known for his work with a community called uh, Larche, which... Um, I forget, I forget where exactly Larsh was originally founded, but they, they have communities all over. Mm-hmm. I think there's one in D.C., there's one in Toronto where, where he s- spent some time at. And it's a community mostly for those who um, deal with mental and physical handicaps. Um, and some of his writing comes very much out of that community experience, living with these folks and learning from them. So, um, like I said, I, I ran into now and through his writings. I'd heard about him before seminary, um, but being that I have a master's in spiritual formation on top of my master's of divinity, um, now was an author that I ran across a lot. And in the very first book I read by him, which technically isn't by him, it's it's a collection of his thoughts and things that was written after his death, but it's called Spiritual Formation. He has this quote, and he says, the spiritual life is not lived outside, before, after, or beyond our everyday existence. No, the spiritual life can be real only as it is lived in the midst of the pains and the joys of the here and the now. And that's just kind of like a theme that I see throughout yeah. the the writings of, of now and I've read. Now, I've, I have several of his books, some of which I've not read. Um, his most famous book is Wounded Healer, um, which I have not read yet, but I it's on my to-do <laughs> to read list because I've just heard amazing things about this book. But now it is all about, you know, living out your spirituality and and not separating it from life. You know, sometimes we do this dichotomy, you know, you've mm-hmm. got your spiritual side, your religious side, and then you've got, like, your life side. Mm-hmm. And for him, you cannot break those two apart. Um, he struggled himself with, some, with loneliness and, and some other things. Um, and you can kind of see that in some of his writings. Uh, you can hear that. Um, and so it really speaks to me because, you know, I've been through some hard times, some difficult times in life, 
And um, But there's a few other quotes I, I want to share from some of his other books. There's a little book called In the Name of Jesus. I, I love that his books are small. Uh, but they're, <laughs> they're, they're, Thank God for authors who know brevity. <laughs> but, I mean, they're, they're, they're so powerful, though. Like, while they are short books, um, it takes a while, at least for me, to get through them because there's just so much depth to them. Um, but in, in this book, In the, Life of, in the Name of Jesus, um, now it's talking about living amongst the Arsh community, and he says that these broken, wounded, and completely unpretentious people force me to let go of my relevant self, the self that can do things, show things, prove things, build things, and force me to reclaim the unadored self in which I'm completely vulnerable, open to receive and to give love regardless of any accomplishments. I'm telling you this because I'm the Christian leader of the future is called to be completely irrelevant and to stand in this world with nothing to offer but his or her own vulnerable self. Like. Nice. And I'd forgotten that quote from, you know, and so I was looking back through my book and, and seeing what kind of struck me when I read it in seminary. And, and I realized how much, why I like now, because this is how I try to live my life as, mm-hmm. as a pastor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand that, um, we live in a time and an age where I think people need to see our vulnerability as clergy. Um, you know, in the time and age in which he lived and even just within Catholicism in general, that's not always something that, that gets seen a lot. You right. know, the priest is very staunch. It's very, you know, he's very, um, unemotional. You, you don't get to see that kind of vulnerable side of a Catholic priest, at least from my experience and from what I've heard from my family. Um, but now and understands that for us to be relevant, for us to really reach our people, we have to be willing to put ourselves out there and say, you know what? I'm human too. I struggle just like you struggle. Here are some of my struggles. And he would, though I have a red wounded healer, I know that um, enough about it to say that he doesn't speak out of the current hurt. Mm-hmm. He speaks out of the hurt that he's worked through. Sure. And that's the whole point of wounded healer. Um, you know, the, when, I, when I'm when i struggling with something, you know, sometimes as I'm writing a sermon, I'm thinking about the stuff that I'm personally struggling with right then and mm-hmm. then, there. And, and sometimes I can put that into a sermon. But often they're not. Um, I tend to, if I print my own personal story into my sermons, it's something I've dealt with. The wounds have been healed. You know, there, there are scars now. It's not something that's fresh and open, and I can speak life from that point of view. And so that's uh, what Nowen, you know, he, he bases a lot of his understanding on. Um, also from from that same book, from the, In the Name of Jesus, he says, The Christian leader of the future is one who truly knows the heart of God as it has become flesh, a heart of flesh in Jesus. Knowing God's heart means consistently, radically, and very concretely to announce and reveal that God is love and only love, and that every time fear, isolation, or despair begins to invade the human soul, this is not something that comes from God. This sounds very simple and maybe even trite, but very few people know that they are loved without any conditions or limits. Mm. That's just... mm. And this is one of those. my heart. Yeah, well, this, this is one of those places where, like, I would say, even though it, you, you know, it, he comes from the Catholic tradition, like Lutherans go, like, "Yeah, we've been saying this," and like Methodists go, like, "Yeah, that warms our hearts." Like, this is something uh-huh. that is universal in a single tradition. There's, yeah, all of our traditions like sometimes obscure that. 
And, and so just so this unconditional love, again, I, I have a skewed view of the Catholic Church because my, my teachings and things of the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. I've tried to to learn from priests and from current Catholics and, and, and try to understand um, what their true theology and, and doctrine is, things like this. But it is so important for, for me as a pastor, for us as Christians, to, to keep this in mind. Um, that God loves us without conditions or limits. Because, you know, we've talked in previous episodes just in this series about, you know, like Tertullian and the limits, that, you know, right. once you commit this certain sin, well, then you're you're excommunicated yeah. from the community and you can never come back even if you repent of. And, and this idea that God can um, not only forgive that sin, but then the community can welcome us back in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, it comes from his work with Larsh and, and just... The pure that comes with working with the mentally disabled. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I like that quote you read earlier uh, from his experience at Larsh about being around folks uh, in the Larsh community to abandon his need for relevance. And the mm-hmm. idea of, um, and that, that seems especially a temptation for us who are religious professionals, especially in an mm-hmm. era where people lament about the decline of the church and are we relevant anymore in traditions try and aim for relevancy we'll have screens we'll mm-hmm. have guitars we'll mm-hmm. have you know whatever that we'll have movie mm-hmm. night like whatever things we think striving for will this get people interested and that now is just the opposite of quit trying mm-hmm. and can you be authentically beloved and let that be what you communicate and that's a, it, that will that it, it's mm-hmm. it's not it's not about that as a gimmick or marketing just announce the unconditional love of God and live like it's true, that by itself is compelling. Yeah, it's not about what you can do and what you can show and the, the, what you can prove. Like, it's not about what you can create mm-hmm. um, physically, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but but just that unconditional love. And I, I think, um, and I don't know the large community, who all was involved in that and what kind of disabilities are, are part of that community even today, but I think of like children with Down syndrome, mm-hmm. um, and just the the joy that so often is on their faces, you know, of children the whole way up through adults that, that deal with that uh, mental disability. You know, that that just the pureness of them. They can't contribute to society often in the same ways that you know the three mm-hmm. of us maybe mm-hmm. can, mm-hmm. and others, and yet they contribute to society in a way that sometimes we forget to do. Yeah. One of the things I like about the way you uh, shared this about about Nowen and his own reflections in Larsh um, is that he doesn't become he, he acknowledges that what he says could sound trite or sentimental or saccharine, mm-hmm. but he doesn't mean in that way. And uh, like I, I'm reminded in my memory now of a mother and daughter I knew um, in the one community where I served where the uh, daughter had had Down syndrome, and um, her mom for a long, for all her life long was the primary caregiver, even when the husband and father in the picture had died. And it was just the two of them, and the mom would not pull punches as far as this is tough stuff because that meant mm-hmm. that there were times where you know her, her daughter for all of her joyful moments it was it's difficult to be on the clock all the time and to have mm-hmm. to be the adult when oh, the yeah. you know and. It was wearying, but also there was something genuine about the. I mean, there was there was that unconditional love between the two of them in a way mm-hmm. that wasn't saccharine or um, uh, trite. But the, the now it has this ability to appreciate not only the, the the presence of God in the ordinary and the common, but even in the 
unpleasantness of the ordinary mm-hmm. and the common too. That sometimes it's not fun or easy to be washing dishes or doing laundry or chores or things like that, and yet that's where God's presence often shows up. And I think that also ties into the the part of the Catholic tradition that the monastic life is mm-hmm. all about. That mm-hmm. sometimes we we mischaracterize, maybe especially we Protestants, the that oh monastics, you think you're trying to get you climb your way up to God by praying extra times mm-hmm. a day. And no, it's about living your life in such a way that. You practice the presence of God, the bar mm-hmm. that of the line, uh, in everything, mm-hmm. and not just when I'm praying with incense and candles lit, but that helps me so that in the other moments when I'm washing dishes or tending the garden or taking out the trash, I can see God's presence there too. Yeah, that's a very Brother Lawrence. Yeah, the yeah, practicing yeah. Practicing the presence of God, you know, because he, Brother Lawrence always talked about, you know, washing the dishes and just how he can commune with God because it's such a mundane thing that his mind is then free to. Mm-hmm. To pray and to commune with God in a way that maybe he can't when he was doing other things, and mm-hmm. I think that's what Nowen hits on. And, and and while he's a scholar and he has a doctorate and he he taught at places like Yale and and others, um, I love that his pastoral side, you know, being a priest, uh, he never loses that. Mm-hmm. And and there's just this connection um, for me because sometimes as priests we just we're so focused on on the we got to get this done and this done and this done um, that we lose that connection um, with our people. Um, one other book that I, I read in seminary, and like I said, I have others that I have not read, um, but I'm sure I'll underline plenty of quotes in them as well. He's, he's really prolific, isn't he? Like, About 40 he has, books. My goodness. I think I own like two, which I've also <laughs> not read. Cause... Yeah, I own about five or six, and there's one on my list that I need to buy one of these days. It talks about... Um, He's got one on on icons mm. that he does, yeah. and then he does one on the parable of the um, the parable of the prodigal son. That's the one I own. Yeah, that's one I need to read. But the, I can loan it to you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I want my own copy. <laughs> but this this again, itty bitty short book. I mean, not even a hundred pages. Uh, called the Living Reminder: Service and Prayer in the Memory of Jesus. Um, talks a lot about, um, and I think probably leans kind of into his wounded healer um, work. Uh, but just being the minister as, or all the sections of the minister as the healing reminder, the minister at the, as a sustaining reminder, the minister as a guiding reminder. And there's this beautiful quote in there. He said, if, if ministers are reminders, their first task is to offer the space in which the, the wounded memories of the past can be reached and brought back into light without fear. Hmm. Um, you know, so often when, when I've talked with friends and with parishioners about their past, um, and especially a, a, a difficult past, whether that's because of their own sin or the sin of others, you know, maybe there's abuse involved or something like that, people are fearful to bring those things up because they don't want to bring back those memories. They don't want to deal with that because they think if they just suppress it enough, it will eventually go. We talked about how you can't, heal something that you don't deal with mm-hmm. basically like you have to bring it to the surface you have to you have to bring it to Jesus and you have to work in your life and bring healing into your life but if you just keep repressing it you keep putting it you know pushing it on the back burner pushing it in the back of your mind then that wound's going to keep coming back up and it's going to to get graphic it's going to press open and it's going to cause you more pain but if you are willing to bring it to the light of Jesus if you can find that for for him a priest, but you know for us a pastor or a trusted Christian friend that that can just sit with you in that and let you 
talk about that wound, you can find so much healing um, through Jesus in that. And and when you do that, then you can move on. And, and that wound becomes part of your past, part of your story, but it doesn't have the power to hurt you like it has had before. And, and so that's, um, again, as somebody who's who's been through that, who has... has um, gone through some difficult times and has worked through it with counselors and with colleagues and, and, and friends and allowed them to speak, you know, that life into me and, and be Jesus for me. Um, it, it's been a great experience. And so for, to hear that from, um, an older brother in the faith that I greatly respect and, and to be reminded that that's my role as a pastor to do that for my people, uh, and to be able to create that space for them to be able to do that is something I always need to keep in mind. It it um, it resonates with my probably my favorite now quote what you just shared the idea of being able to be healed by just the presence of somebody else without the idea mm-hmm. and this goes back to that notion you'd mentioned about sort of abandoning the need to look relevant um, uh, this is one that I want to get the words right so I brought it up on my little screen here because otherwise I would have terribly butchered it <laughs> but uh, this is now this is, uh, from his out of solitude when we honestly ask ourselves which person in our lives mean the most to us. We often find that it is those who, instead of giving advice, solutions, or cures, mm-hmm. have chosen rather to share our pain and touch our wounds with a warm and tender hand. The friend who can be silent with us in a moment of despair or confusion, who can stay with us in an hour of grief and bereavement, who can tolerate not knowing, not curing, not healing, and face with us the reality of our powerlessness. That is a friend who cares. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I find that, that quote now so... Um, convicting to me too because I know the impulse as a religious professional to be like you're supposed to do something to make the Mm -hmm. so you know leave them with the smile or pray the prayer now everything's happy and like to know that so much of our work and and this isn't just for pastors this is I think to be the people of God this is the model Mm -hmm. for all of us even if pastors do this more frequently or have the free time in their work day to do this but it's it's less about how can I fix you and leave you with a smile in 20 minutes or less like it's a pizza and instead um, be okay with being with someone else in their hurt mm-hmm. and sometimes all we can say are like Job's friends on the ash heap I can't fix this for you but I'll be here on the ash heap with you mm-hmm. and um, it'll we'll hurt together and somehow we're convinced something holy happens in the midst of that that's hard to do especially in a culture like ours that is so obsessed with results and success and how did you mm-hmm. you know what, what can you prove quantifiably that your time was useful and so much of what the people of God are called to do uh, if we take Nowen seriously, is not only not quantifiable, but looks like failure because you didn't do anything at the end. Mm-hmm. And you can't say, well, here's that we had a 33% increase in smiles at the end of <laughs> Nowen. It, it, it's, we were there and somebody hurt and I walked with them and it was okay that it didn't look like success. That's hard. Mm-hmm. I know I've said it in sermons and maybe even on this podcast, but some of my most powerful ministry moments have been those moments that look like no ministry was done. Mm-hmm. Because all I've done is sat mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and just been present, been um, Jesus with flesh on in the room, yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah. And, and whether that's because somebody's dying or, or somebody is, um, you know, ill in a hospital bed and just sitting with family. Sometimes the family's all conversing around the person maybe that's laying in the bed there and, and I'm just sitting on the side. I remember one time, uh, one the first gentleman I did a funeral for he was actively dying and the the whole family was around and um there was a baby in the room and the baby got a little fussy and um I I knew the wife and and kids and extended family needed to be with with husband and dad and 
and the baby was becoming a distraction. And so I just took the baby out mm-hmm. into another part of the hospice house and mm-hmm. just rocked the baby until he fell back to sleep. And that doesn't seem like it was much. Mm-hmm. But I know, you know, the family complimented me on that later. And I didn't do it for the compliments. I just right. did it because... Right. You know what? You need to focus on your dad right now, right. not your child. Right. Let me take your child and, and right. just hold him and love him so that you can focus and be where yeah. you need to be. And while it looks like that's doing nothing, I mean, like, in a sense, it looks like, well, anybody could do that. And in a sense, the idea is, yeah, anybody is meant to be able yeah. to do that. At the same time, it requires such um, a level of self-awareness and being present in the moment that you're Mm -hmm. not so focused about oh why am i anxious and how you know like like Mm -hmm. you have to be so in control of yourself and what's going on for you that you can spot instead of saying why won't somebody make that baby quiet oh i could be the person and instead Mm -hmm. of going oh but if i'm not in the room does it count as doing ministry nope this is the moment i need to carry the baby into another room Mm -hmm. and that that self-awareness that ability to read a situation that it does take practice and uh, mm-hmm. the, 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 the skill of just doing it and fumbling through it and messing up at it, even if, in another sense, it's, well, anybody could do that. Yeah, but it also requires the self-awareness that most of us aren't. Like, it is really easy for me just to wander through life, stumbling through, not conscious of the, the, mm-hmm. the baggage I bring into every moment and every situation. And to be a pastoral presence isn't about pretending you don't have baggage. But it's about being conscious, I guess, enough of it that you can not whack other people with it when you walk into the room. Also involves some relationship building and already being in that yeah. loving mm-hmm. relationship. Because yeah. I know as a mother to two very small children, not anybody can take my kids and mm-hmm. walk them out of yeah. the room and have and allow me to be present in the moment. Because um, I've definitely been in worship services where somebody's taken one of my kids out of church, out of out of the space, mm-hmm. and because he was being noisy and being grumpy and needed to just leave for a minute, but that instantly took me out of worship mm-hmm. mentally, mm-hmm. and the, I just felt my anxiety rising mm-hmm. because my kids not right. within eyesight. Right. I don't know what's happening. But, you know, relationship building, you know, if the right person takes my kid mm-hmm. out of worship, I'm like, oh, he's fine. Yeah. Um, and that takes a level of trust and relationship and love. Yeah, yeah. And that means, then, that in the moment when you show up into a pastoral care moment, when somebody's dying and in hospice, and you show up and are able to be the one who takes the baby, not only are you being like a ninja of pastoral care they're knowing the, it doesn't require me to be in the room with a dying person my moment right now is to be with the baby right mm-hmm. now for a moment but also it means that in all the interactions leading up to that that build the trust of that moment can happen which means mm-hmm. that so much of being the people of God together isn't just about that instant in time mm-hmm. but everything that has led up to it and everything that will flow from it too um, and again we aren't good at that we're used to in mm-hmm. this moment what did you do and instead the 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 moments where it looks like nothing is happening that's to me why i think like that that i observation you you lifted up of brother lawrence's about washing dishes being a holy mm-hmm. moment for prayer all of our life together is like that too so that it's in the moment when you're cleaning up from the church dinner or something mm-hmm. like that it doesn't look particularly holy or churchy or whatever and nobody's praying in that moment either but those connections happen in such a way that then they trust you when their hearts breaking or they're mm-hmm. trusting you and that all these are interconnected mm-hmm. And, and the beauty of that moment for me, and didn't realize it, I guess, then uh, with the baby, but now talking with you all, I started at that church in January. This gentleman, I did his funeral about a month and a half in. 
And so, I mean, this is not... I've, I've been there like a month. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this isn't years of relationship. This isn't building. years of relationship, but I, I think if we allow the Holy Spirit and, and Jesus to work in and, and through us, because I'm not even sure, like, the extended family, how long I had known, maybe mm-hmm. just a couple of days at that mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, nobody seemed to question me taking the baby out of the room. I, I, I honestly mm-hmm. think it gave them some comfort, because he was just getting a little cranky. Yeah. He just needed rocking so, until he fell back asleep. And um, you know, just to allow that presence of, of Jesus to just work through you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's an honor and it's a privilege for me when people tell me that they, they see Jesus in me for no matter how long they've known me. Yeah. I met a gentleman just a few weeks ago that um, first time we'd ever met, he said, I see Jesus in you. And I think we, not just as religious professionals, but it's just as Christians in mm-hmm. general need to really work on that so that when the moment comes, you know, if you have a long relationship, that's great and that's wonderful. It makes it easier. Mm-hmm. But even if it's a very short-term relationship, that people can can see Jesus in you and and feel Jesus working through you and, and know that you are a safe person yeah. to be around. And one of the gifts of for, for now in life of living in this community, in the large mm-hmm. community, is here are the people where life provides you day by day with regular mm-hmm. interaction with people where the trust gets built in a relatively short amount of time. And that's, again, the, 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 the recommendation is not, well, we become best friends with a bunch of people. And then, but like one key toward becoming the kind of people that now and calls or sees us calling to it needing to be is to be intentional in communities with people um, and to foster those moments that don't look religious mm-hmm. and to say that's important. Um, but maybe even the prayer situation we stepped in, step into, because we don't always have the luxury of being in a community of people you see every day, but mm-hmm. uh, having our eyes open both at what's going on in the situation we walk into, but also our, an eye open on what's going on in my own heart or life that's baggage that I should at least be conscious of so that it doesn't get in the way and I can instead be attentive to the needs of other people. And that requires a discipline that not only we have to get our heads out of our phones, um, but also, <laughs> I mean, like the intentional eyes open, what's going on around mm-hmm. me, not just like in a literal what actions are happening, but like what's going on in the hearts around us. And even that takes effort to do all the time. I, yep. mean, it, I think it's worth it, but that means a constant. I'm I'm never just on. Hey, I'm on, I'm not on call. I don't have to care about what's going on mm-hmm. for you. But it means when you walk into the store and somebody is, you know, um, you know, hobbling around, and you could be the one who helps get the thing off the shelf, or when there's somebody who just seems like they're holding mm-hmm. back tears in the course of conversation, not to ignore it or like when well, that's their problem, but like the it requires the intentional, conscious, all the time reading of the world around us, and it's draining. Yeah. It's so, personally, as an introvert, Sorry. that is exceptionally draining for me because I get my energy by being alone or not being around people. I mm-hmm. love people, and I'm, I, I think I'm, I'm halfway decent about hanging around with folks. And in a group like this, with just the three of us, I'm cool. Like, we can do this for hours, and I'm fine. Um, but when you get me in a large crowd, then that, that mm-hmm. starts to drain me. Uh, but even for the extroverts, it, it's, it's draining to be that aware. Right. Um, but I have found the more I can do it, the more the spirit takes over. And even in when I'm exhausted and I'm at Walmart and I'm running just to grab something real quick because I need it, like milk and eggs or something, and then I want to leave, um, I need to make sure that I'm intentional about being aware of my surroundings. Because, yeah. again, you know, I'm, I might not be on my phone. I just might be in my own head with all my own stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, and miss somebody. But if... If I'm following, you know, the teachings of now and, and his writings, then I need to make sure 
that I don't allow my own stuff to bog me down. Yeah. Not saying that I can't deal with my own stuff. I mean, there's a time and a place for that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's maybe something, uh, from doing a little bit of reading about him, something that he kind of struggled with. I don't think yeah. he had a lot of people that he could really discuss his own issues with, and that led to some of the loneliness and, and things in his life. But um, but it, we have to recognize that there's, there's a time and a place for that. Yeah. And it's not always here and now. All of this reminds me of uh, a, a definition I had heard who said it, uh, but that humility is neither thinking too much of yourself nor too little of yourself. Mm-hmm. And I see it in a pastoral sense that means being able to step into a situation and not being so absorbed with it's all about me that I can't attend to the needs of others, but also not thinking so little of myself that I think, oh, they're having a rough time, but I couldn't be useful. But to see like mm-hmm. the, the presence of other people in any situation I walk into that I'm not the most important person necessarily aware of what else is going on, but also if there's a need around, I could be a part of answering mm-hmm. or meeting or walking with them. And that it, it's not just a woe is me, I'm, I'm a worm, I'm nothing, I'm that kind of thing uh, that sometimes monasticism gets accused of. Yeah. Um, but it's this ability to read the room. And it's not that my needs don't matter, but also I'm not the only person in the universe. <laughs> and being able to hold those together is, is a, uh, a difficult thing. Any other things that you would call our attention to or that seem like pertinent uh, things from Malman's voice for us to carry with us forward in the day? I mean, like I said, I, there's so much more of his works that I want to read um, just because I've heard so many, you know, from what I have read, I, I've absolutely fallen in love with him and, and the way he writes and the way he speaks. Um, so I would encourage anyone, if you've not read now and, you know, find something um, I would say Wounded Healer would probably be a good place to start, mm-hmm. even though I've not read it. And Return of the Prodigals. Return of the Prodigal mm-hmm. is another one. Um, yeah, but it looks. I went onto Amazon at one point while you were talking about him because I wanted to see. Because over 40 books, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's a lot of books. And sure enough, he has something for just about anybody yeah. on all sorts of tom- topics about spirituality and mm-hmm. ministry. He has a stewardship book. He has a book about the spirituality of caregiving. Mm-hmm. There's um, all kinds of, like, basically any topic mm-hmm. he's yeah. written a book on. And one of the things I think is interesting about the the voices who are, like, those dominant voices who we keep coming back to, like, in the now and, like, the whomever. In some sense, eventually, after you've read enough of their stuff, you kind of get, like, oh, yeah, this fits, like, you're, there's some overlap, <laughs> and, like, what he says about stewardship lines up with what he says about caregiving, and you get a feel for mm-hmm. it. That And there's some authors where I would read anything they ever produce, anything yeah. they write, even if it's a lot of, you know, rehashing the old classics, you know. Um, but... Um, it's at, at some point sticking your toes in the water and getting exposed to a reader, a writer like like now and gives you a feel for their world. And if 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 once you've taken a taste, you're like, okay, I now I'd like to see more specifically. What does mm-hmm. he say about this or this or this? That gives you further direction. But almost yeah, start anywhere and um and and see if if if, if there's something that, that clicks or connects and and what what helps change the way you see the world in there. Yeah, because amongst the three books that I read in seminary, I mean, there is so much overlap. Mm-hmm. You know, he has a very specific style, very specific, you know, mindset into his writing. Um, didn't know he wrote on stewardship, so that really has me intrigued. But also, I mean, um, if you're interested in what he actually did versus what he wrote, you know, check out the Larash community. Um, like I said, there, there's various places around, nothing local to us, mm-hmm. but I mean, definitely I think something... Um, to look into it and just find out more about that community because 
what they what they've done with that community in the, in their various locations around the world is just absolutely amazing. So um, yeah, cool. check them out. Cool. Well, thank you everybody for uh, listening, and thanks to you, Erica, for sharing yes, uh, the teasing taste of uh, Henri Nouwen. Thanks so much. Bye. Guys. Bye. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.